From the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young. As I started to think more about theories around food, and it's a thing that we do every day without fail, and it really shapes the way that we interact with one another, it shapes the way we interact with our environments, the ways that we create networks of relationships. Being able to kind of name it has given it a power to be able to use it to tap into ways to think about social relationships in the present and kind of propose alternatives. This week, we're devoting the full show to my conversation with Dr. Caitlin Alcantara, an anthropological bioarchaeologist at Indiana University who studies foodways as tools of empowerment. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's dive right into my conversation with Caitlin Alcantara. My name is Caitlin Alcantara, and I joined the faculty in anthropology in August 2020. And I am trained as an archaeologist and anthropologist, and I'm interested in food ways in the past and the present. So I understand that the name for your field is anthropological bioarchaeology. That is a mouthful. Can you explain that for those of us who aren't familiar with that field? Yeah. So anthropology is anything that has to do with studying human systems, human relationships. And then archaeology is ancient relationships and humans that aren't physically around anymore. And so we do that through analyzing material remains, things they left behind, whether that's art or architecture or written materials or food remains. And bioarchaeology is looking at the actual uh, physical human remains that are left behind and trying to interpret the way that society shaped bodies in the past. So we don't have these people to talk to anymore and to ask them about what their lived experience was, but we can look at the way that their lived experience shaped their bodies on a lot of different levels. You can do that on a molecular level and literally see you know, what foods were shaping their bones, but also looking at things like um, how nutrition impacted the, their bodies throughout life, looking at how there's differences between different individuals in a population to help you understand things about access and relationships of exchange. And then, yeah, just looking at lived experiences, you know, we go through life and get in accidents and have particular moments that shape our bodies. So going back and looking at that in archaeological contexts. You're talking about prehistoric times, too, like just being able to really learn things about people's everyday lives, like about their food. Mm-hmm. How, how do you do that? What are the kinds of methods that you that you yourself have been involved with? Yeah. So I work with a team. I can't do all of the things (laughs) on my own. And so I focus on kind of the individual level of interpreting the past where there's also a team that's looking at archaeological sites across the whole site. So they're looking at architecture, at refuse, like trash middens where people threw out old foods that then we can analyze and see like what physical evidence is there of what was being eaten and discarded. So there we get things like animal bones and pollen and plant remains so we can interpret there you know what was being prepared and used and then we can also look at things like murals and writing and and seeing what's being referenced in the past we can also look at 
cores in the soil to see what mm. seeds and plants there were in the ecosystem. You can look at oral histories. And then on my end, I do dietary isotope studies. So that's actually taking some samples of tooth enamel and some samples of bone. And then we break them down and measure how much carbon and nitrogen of different isotopes there are. And that tells us about different kind of categories of food. So carbon tells us about uh, different types of plants that were eaten in the past. And nitrogen tells us more about the food web. So whether they were eating more plant-based diet or if there was marine foods in the diet or if there were small rodents in the diet versus were they eating larger carnivorous animals as well. And so it can help us rebuild what the food chain looked like in the past. Can you talk a little bit about your specific research in Mexican foodways in the late post-classic period? <laughs> I would really like to hear more about that. Yeah. So the late post-classic is just a way of saying the period right before the Spanish arrived. Okay. And so that's a period that goes from around 1300 to 1519 when the Spanish first arrived in Veracruz and then made their way inland to central Mexico. And I really like this period because there's so many things that you see in Mexican cooking on the landscape, the types of plants that are grown in people's kitchen gardens that we see in archaeological contexts as well. So because it's this later period, there's still really easily traceable elements of culture that are persisting in the present. What my research started out as was to look at a site that resisted the Aztec Empire as they were expanding throughout central Mexico around the 1400s. And this one city-state was able to kind of resist encroaching allies that were surrounding them. And in Mexican history, this has kind of been downplayed a lot as just like, oh, well, they were holding out, but it was a matter of time before they would become part of the Aztec Empire. And then the Spanish arrived and it kind of threw a wrench into history. But I was curious about what were the conditions that allowed them to maintain the sovereignty where other places hadn't been able to do so. And there have been different ways that people approach this question, whether they had like military might and the Tlaxcalteca, which is the, the region I work in, the, the people from Tlaxcala, they were known as fierce warriors. And so one of the arguments was that, you know, they had a very strong military that was able to help with this resistance. But I think that's a really simple answer. So I was curious more about like, well, what else was there? And so one of the ways that I started exploring that was through bioarchaeological analysis of the burial population at one of this one site within the state. There was a huge project going to prepare this site for tourism. And so they had hundreds of people working on the site and were able to restore and uncover large portions of this the city. And as they were doing that, they were restoring a plaza and stumbled upon a cemetery. Mm. And so they needed somebody to kind of analyze the burials that they were finding so that they could move forward with the restoration of the area. And I was just in the right place at the right time. And so I jumped into the project in that capacity and documented how many people there were, what ages they were, and kind of their living, their life experiences. Were they a population that had a lot of illness? Were they a population that had a lot of violence? And ultimately, this led me to become really curious about the role of foodways in their ability to resist the empire because it was a population that didn't really have any 
markers of nutritional deficiency in their body. There wasn't any issues with growing good, healthy bones. They had really good dental health. And this is something that you don't see at other sites in the region around the same time period. So something about the way they were living was keeping them pretty healthy. And so they weren't like this, this poor population that was struggling to resist. And as I was doing this analysis that was really isolated in a lab by myself, doing a lot of Excel sheets, I also was living in Tlaxcala for about a year. And during that time period, I would go out to the markets. There's one in particular that's new. It's it's probably about 16 years old, so it's not a long-standing market, but it was an agroecological market, so small-scale mm-hmm. farmers that are really dedicated to the social relationships of farming and maintaining really small relationships. And I just started talking to people there and learning a little bit about some of these ways of farming or of cooking or of sharing food and started to imagine what if that's what people were doing in Plascala. And so having feedback from these people that I was talking to helped me go back and reinterpret the data that I was getting from the archaeological site and propose that perhaps one of the reasons they were able to resist was because of the system of food sharing that happens. They have a lot of festivals where everybody comes and eats together and also just a deep knowledge of all that is available on the landscape, um, mm. being able to eat things that other people might consider weeds or animals that might be considered too small or that we as contemporary archaeologists might not see as food but are very high nutrient things that they can include in their diets. So you were finding evidence of those food ways in contemporary diets or you were wondering if if there was? Yeah, like a, a lot of the people that I talked to in the market, they would have, you know, your everyday things like lettuces and tomatoes and, you know, uh, cabbage, but they also would bring a lot of wild greens. So these are things that here we see and we don't consider food. We consider weeds that invade our gardens, but... Like what kinds of... Um, I'm blanking on the name right now. They're called quintoniles in Spanish, but they're like... Um, Lamb's quarters. Yeah, say yeah lamb's, lamb's quarters, quarters is, is one that we see all over the place, especially in Bloomington. I've noticed it a lot. It sprouts up everywhere. But that's a really high nutrient green and kind of those wild things that grow a lot of cacti as well have high nutrient contents, but we don't consider them as food now in the present. And so we don't see them as kind of part of that food web. And so I was seeing how much in this particular market people were using those as things that they were selling, things they were including in their recipes. There's this excellent stand that makes all of the Mexican food that you could imagine, but only with mushrooms instead of with meat. And mm-hmm. so they have like tacos de aguisado, like lengua tacos, but they're made out of different types of mushrooms that have different consistencies. And mm-hmm. and just thinking about how much our food system in the present is very much shaped by colonialism and this European influence on food that would have looked much different in the past. And so what I was seeing was that they were showing me different possibilities of understanding the data that I was getting from the archaeological site. And that data looked like a population that was eating a lot of things that had similar values to cactus, to wild greens, eating a lot of things that weren't necessarily marine foods that showed trade, but were really localized, you know, wild birds and deer and and things like that. And then the other thing was that 
the population was all really similar. So there wasn't a hierarchy of access. And that might have meant that we see in contemporary Tlaxcala where they have these festivals at churches where everybody can come and get free food. They had similar things then where they would have events where everybody would contribute food and share food, and that kind of evened the playing field for everybody to be able to have access to similar things. Wow. That is so interesting. I can't even imagine <laughs> what that must be like to discover those kinds of things, especially what you said about the hierarchy of access. That just seems like something that must be rare in in what you find in various societies, you know. Yeah. When I, I think it's something that, I mean, I, I've more recently been reading into a lot of indigenous foodways across the Americas, and I think it is something that was more common that we've forgotten about or that was kind of written out of history, but that was one of the ways that people were able to survive without having as heavy a dependence on agriculture as European societies did was by creating networks of food sharing and creating these events where people would all come together in the middle of winter and have, you know, like you could just imagine like having a bunch of different stews and nuts and breads that people are bringing. And especially I think like during the pandemic, just thinking about the winter time, how nice it is to be able to come together and talk during this period of cold, dark and be able to share in those things. So I think that it probably wasn't as rare as we think it is. Right. Yeah, we just, we kind of forgot that that's how things were, or at least maybe not forgot, but erased from memory. My guest is Dr. Caitlin Alcantara, anthropological bioarchaeologist at Indiana University who studies foodways as tools of empowerment. More from our conversation after a short break. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Let's get back to my conversation with anthropology professor Caitlin Alcantara. Were you already working in food? Were you already interested in food as part of your research? Or did this particular culture and what you found sort of get you into it? I think subconsciously I was interested in food. I grew up going between Mexico and the U.S. and not really being sure how to express my identity as a Mexican-American, and food is a really easy way to do that. Knowing how to cook something, being familiar with certain foods. When I'd go to Mexico, I'd request certain foods, and that would make me feel like I was home or I was connected. And when I was in the States, being able to make those foods while I was here made me feel closer to Mexico as well. And that's something that I didn't really start thinking about until I got into kind of my dissertation work and and this research, but that now has grown a lot more and it seems obvious that it was always there. (laughs) And it just took me this process to recognize that. The university that I studied at had a focus on dietary isotopes that kind of pushed me in that direction. Mm -hmm. But as I started to think more about theories around food and the fact that we, it's a thing that we do every day without fail, And it really shapes the way that we interact with one another. It shapes the way we interact with our environments, the ways that we create networks of relationships. And I think I was 
subconsciously aware of that and then being able to kind of name it has given it a power to be able to use it to tap into ways to think about social relationships in the present and kind of propose alternatives. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything more about what excited you or um, uh, about what you were discovering? I was coming from my sixth year of graduate school. I was very burnt out and over academia and over trying to figure out what my theoretical framework was and <laughs> trying to sound smart. And I I got a Fulbright to study in Mexico for a year and do my research. And getting that break from learning in a purely book sense and getting to actually experience and meet people that weren't academics and have conversations that were adjacent to what I was studying, but weren't forcing themselves to be research was really, really energizing for me. And most of the people that I encountered and that would have conversations with, we would bond because we were both plant people. We were excited about how different plants grew and different flavors and different ingredients that you could grow yourself. And I think I started out with that as just like, these are people I enjoy around being around. These are people that I enjoy talking to. And then slowly began to realize that there was there was actually that theoretical framework I was looking for. That's what it was, was this relationship to to land, this relationship to thinking about how we cultivate connection to a place, cultivate connection to the things that grow in that place, how they become a part of our own bodies as we eat them, how they become a way that we connect with one another. Seeing that take shape and then thinking about that as a way to put myself in the past and imagine that happening on the landscape that I was able to be living on with mm. the plants around me that I knew grew in that time period because we'd found evidence of them and imagining the way that I was seeing people cooking in the marketplace over, you know, coal stoves and seeing, imagining that in the past as well, it just really brought it to life. Well, so it sounds like your interest isn't just driven by understanding a specific period. You're really interested in connecting it with contemporary life, daily life, and issues that are happening now and how we relate to food. Yeah, yeah. Another part of my work that happened around that time was that when I came back after that trip, I needed, I craved that interconnective academic academic approach. It wasn't enough to just be writing anymore. And so I started a after-school cooking program where I was working with Latinx immigrants in Nashville and cooking with middle school students as a way to remind them of where they came from or help them tap into those memories that are just so hard when you have to leave the land that that you're from and come and live in a different place and still try and understand who you are and what values you have and what history you have. So I started these cooking workshops. There were, they were really about just getting people to remember all of the things they already knew by mm -hmm. smelling something and having a memory spark about how their grandmother used to make it or where they would eat it or a particular family event. And I think that was where I started to see the way that this archaeological conversation that I was having was about so much more in terms of food sovereignty, that this 
site in Mexico was an example of why it's so important to have this connection to your food sources and distribution of abundant free things from the landscape, but that that also crossed over into contemporary food access issues and the power and being able to decide how, when you share food to hold knowledge about the way that your ancestors and your family members have shared food or made through food in the past and how much information is contained just in in food itself. So yeah, it definitely sparked a bigger conversation. Can you talk about one of the foods that you made with the students? Yeah, one of the one of the, the sessions that we did, we made elotes, which is just corn on the cob, but you put mayonnaise and cheese and chile on it. But what they learned to do in that workshop was how to grind down dried corn kernels in a mano en a metate, like a, a ground stone. And so I showed them a few archaeological ground stones mm. and had some friends come in that were from Guatemala and they also showed them a few like pictures of how they cooked in Guatemala. There were some students who had recently come to the States and were like, oh yeah, that's how we used to cook in my kitchen all the time. And so it was just like an interesting mix of, of relationships to corn and showing them how like the images of corn in the States, this yellow corn that's all uniform and connecting that to their histories of this diverse multicolored corn that goes back thousands and thousands of years and how much it's part of like Latino cuisine and everything in tortillas, tamales, and just having that conversation with them that like something as simple as like you could boil an ear of corn, slap some mayo on it, and you're tapping into this history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't even have to be this complex recipe. It's really just like how does this flavor, this ingredient, help you remember these deeper connections. Mm-hmm. Wow. You've written a really beautiful piece about that experience for The Bitter Southerner. And I was wondering if you could talk more about what that experience of cooking with those kids, what it meant to you, what it brought to you that you felt like you were missing at that time. Well, I moved to the States when I was about six, and I've mostly lived in places. There have been one or two that were a little bit more culturally diverse and mixed, but most of the places that I've lived have been pretty homogenous. Just, you know, I was the odd one out because I had a little bit of like Mexican-ness still clinging to me. And it was something that I really sought to hide, that I didn't want to be different. And I didn't want anybody to know that I had a different way of seeing the world. And Mm That was something that I don't think I really noticed until I got to college and started taking classes about cultural anthropology and these theories of hierarchy, of cultural hierarchies, and how we internalize these ideas that, you know, we're not enough and how much those are tied to politics. And so as I was doing these programs, I saw so much of that similar experience in the students. They were in Nashville, Tennessee, which... It has a pretty big Latinx immigrant community. It has several different immigrant communities, but it's still in the U.S., and it's still this place that doesn't really center those communities mm-hmm. in the overarching culture. And a lot of these students were coming into Nashville public schools that were predominantly white and had teachers who didn't have time to speak to them in Spanish or to learn more about them, and so they felt just really small, and they felt really 
you know, insignificant. And so being able to cook with them was, I think, something that brought out a lot of stories from students that seemed really shut down and just like these quiet middle schoolers that you couldn't get to talk. But as we started tapping into these sensory experiences, having them chop vegetables or having them smell different spices, it just opened up kind of a portal Mm -hmm. to a different moment in their lives where they did know something and they did have something to say. So I think that was one of the most fun parts was you never knew what kind of stories were going to come out of the students and how much more complex their identities were, were going to be. They were just sharing all kinds of things where before you saw a moody teenager and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. You aren't able to express this part of yourself here, so you'd rather shut down. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was, yeah, that was just a really eye-opening thing to see how easily food can make you feel invisible if you're stuck on school lunches that are bland and really don't bring any memory. They don't make you feel good. They don't make you feel like represented and how easily that can shift to something that opens you up and reminds you all of these stories and memories and experiences that you have within you. Yeah. And you talked about how working together like on a shared task of preparing the food can really open up a more relaxed space for people to talk, which is something I have experienced before. And I think it's it's really interesting to see the way that food can can serve that that role. Yeah. Yeah. I think any tactile kind of learning really just helps us get out of our heads and 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 not be so self-conscious and so, you know, protective of our our energy of like not doing the right thing. So it was it was always fun to see them. And there's one experience in particular that I remember where we had parents come one day and the students had been cooking for like four or five uh, workshops before that. So they knew how to use a knife. They knew like they weren't excellent at everything, but they could do it. And we would end up with OK food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really hard to mess up the things that we were making. And the, the parents came and I had to kind of go around and be like, it's OK to let them do this. You need to step back and mm-hmm. let them do this. See, see what happens if you just let them take this space. And they, they were really surprised, too, by like their kids capacity and yeah, like autonomy that showed up when they were put at the head of that task. So that was also a really fun thing to see them kind of flip from a after-school program where maybe there was more structure of how they should be in the space to just kind of the, the chaos of cooking and allowing that to happen. And did it inform your researcher in any way or, or did it feel like it kind of helped you get through that intense academic time? Yeah. <laughs> I think it reminded me that I needed to tap into play and to joy. And I think when I was doing finishing up my dissertation and doing this, I had a lot of discouragement from my academic sphere of like, you're spending too much time on that and it's not going to help you finish. And ultimately, I think it was one of the things that helped make me a competitive job candidate, helped make me just like a multifaceted person in, in the academic sphere. And it's also really shaped the way that I teach and the way that I do research because I see how students who are only focusing on reading, writing, theory are only operating at like a 50% capacity of what they could be 
in terms of engaging with the world and showing everything that they are. Mm. And so in my classes, no matter what they are, I try and incorporate, you know, a day where we do some art or a day where we cook together or eat together or are outside because I think that switching up the ways that we're engaging with the world and thinking about the world and adding in those more embodied learning styles is really key to getting that deeper multifaceted interpretation and analysis and reflection about why the world works the way that it does. This might be a good time to ask you what are the classes that you're teaching? Yeah, so right now I am teaching community-based research And that's a graduate class that is helping students develop different methodologies for making their work bigger than the university and integrating it more with real world issues and thinking about how to go about partnering with community members in a way that's not patronizing, but Mm. instead is about co-creating and is about recognizing that within this academic silo, we might think we know everything, but everybody contains knowledge that's unique and only they know how the world looks from their perspective and so learning how to create space for different types of knowledge to come together and hold equal footing and then also helping graduate students realize like all of the things that they have in them too that they already have there's so much imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and so trying to counter that by saying, well, you already you already lived at least a couple decades on this on this earth. And so what did you learn during that time and how can we integrate that into this so that you don't feel like you're starting from zero? Mm. And then I've taught uh, a few different undergraduate classes, prehistoric diet and nutrition, which looks at how humans evolved, but with a specific focus on food mm-hmm. and how the food that we've eaten shapes our relationship to landscape and then how that in turn shapes our bodies and the way that we're biologically shaped for a particular form of engagement with our ecosystems. And Becoming Human, which is an evolution class, that's an intro class for anybody that's interested in anthropology and uh, bioanthropology and just wants to get their foot in the door. And then this spring I'll be teaching Food in the Body. And that's a class that I developed to talk about food inequity in the U.S., but from a perspective that looks not just at the last couple decades, but looks all the way back to indigenous relationships to land, how those were ruptured, how that shapes the ways that society created food systems and social systems that really ignored a lot of the, the needs that we have in terms of nutrient sources but also like spiritual and relational relationships to to food and to land and to one another and then traces that through different key moments in U.S. history Mm. of dispossession of migration and thinking about how that then applies to a lot of the food and equity issues that we have now as something that's not as easily solved as redistributing resources it's a lot deeper than that and we have to really address those historical issues before we can talk about long-term solutions. You have described your methods as a decolonial approach, and I was wondering if you would be willing to say a little bit more about that. I mean, you've touched on it a little (laughs) bit. Yeah, it comes from this idea that there was a really big shift in the world during the period of colonialism. All around the world, there was relationships of indigeneity to land, meaning that groups in all of the continents had 
thousand year histories of paying attention to the landscape, of being in a relationship with the landscape, of having kind of sustainable understandings of how much you could take before it through landscape ecosystems out of balance and having that become integrated into all kinds of things like social gatherings and storytelling and art and all of that was interwoven into this understanding that we need to pay attention to balance Mm -hmm. and colonialism kind of came out of this capitalistic idea that well maybe we don't need balance maybe we can accumulate resources and accumulate wealth and that will get us even better than balance that we will be able to have extra and the world that we're living in is really based on that idea of of not balance but how how can you get more how can you get better how can you get more developed and more extraction and more accumulation of resources and technology and one of the things that comes out of that is that we're exhausted and the landscape is really uh, suffering and we see all of these climate shifts that are happening because we're not in balance anymore because we are trying to take too much and this shows up in our own lives in burnout it shows up in our disconnection from one another in depression and anxiety and even like the university systems that are about publishing instead of are you actually learning something that you enjoy and is a value and is going to change the world (laughs) so the decolonial approach for me means trying to counter that system in practice in as many ways as I can so I talked a little bit about class structures that are not just about can you write a paper can you can we hit all of these marks during the semester but that are a lot about checking in with one another are the rhythms we need to reset Are there assignments we need to retool based on who's here and what they need from the classroom? Do we need to make more space for rest because there's things going on in the outside world that are just too much right now? And then another component of that is recognizing that a lot of the, the knowledge that we create within universities is only a very small part of all the different ways that we can learn about the world. And so centering and recognizing traditional knowledge and oral histories and art and cooking even as forms of knowledge that contain a lot of information about the way the world works and trying to recenter those instead of only peer-reviewed articles, only canon books and helping people to recognize that knowledge isn't something that is valuable because it's hoarded or special or elite, but it's something that we all have and all contribute to the world. So when you were talking about the way the world was before colonialism and that that balance and then being out of balance, it's not only affecting people's personal health or mental health, it's you know, it's it's destroying the planet. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 why everything is so out of balance. It I mean, one could make that argument yeah. <laughs> um, and also I just just as you were talking about the people paying attention to what's around them and being in touch with the landscape and knowing what can be taken and how much and just that you know colonialism it strips that from the people who are being colonized mm-hmm. you know it sort of stops that 
from happening or from continuing? I mean, not completely, like, because you've, your work has focused on communities that have resisted through foodways. I think that's something that's really interesting. Could you, I don't know if you want to say any more <laughs> about that, about um, foodways as resistance or food sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would say that it, it strips the people that are being colonized, but it also strips the colonizers of peace. This colonial mentality of always needing more, I think, is something that's really, really pervasive in our culture today that we all kind of have of like, we need to get that better job. We need to do more, have a better relationship, have, you know, more things. And it's something that just really never gives you a space to rest and just be. And so, yeah, I just I wanted to, to, to say that it's something that I think impacts everybody. But in terms of food as resistance, I think there are a lot of ways that it's not as black and white as like colonizer colonized and then like the world is this way and it used to be this way. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many things in between. And I think one of the things that comes out of this mentality of progress is that there is one progress, there's one goal we're trying to reach. And what happens with that is that all the other sidelines, threads that make up our human history get pushed aside or just made less visible. And I think throughout time, throughout colonialism, throughout everything that's happened, there's always so many different other things that are happening at the same time. Yeah. And and so we, like when I think about food as resistance I think about all of the small things that we do every day to try and make our lives more bearable that aren't necessarily the big actions. Like I, you know, went on a walk and I noticed some fall leaves and there was a squirrel and it was really cute and I laughed for a minute. And that is, you know, a small act of resistance and of of trying to be present in the present moment. And I think that things in food ways like, you know, making a meal for your family that you enjoy and the smell of a kitchen with, full of steam from a soup on a winter day is kind of this really present-making form of resistance. And so it is something that we see in communities that we call, you know, the colonized ones or people who we've seen have, have faced a bigger brunt of violence in history and I think we're surprised that like even there you could find these these great things happening. But I think it's also something that we miss at all moments in time. These everyday things and actions, these small, small things that we don't notice are, are kind of shaping the good parts of things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like making a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, talking with Caitlin Alcantara. We'll be back in a moment.
Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats, and my guest is anthropology professor Caitlin Alcantara. I asked her to tell us about the Healing Garden project she started in 2020 at Hilltop Gardens on the campus of Indiana University. I started my position here at the university in August 2020, like I said, and it was hard. It was really hard. It was coming in during a pandemic, coming in to students who were having to deal with a lot at a really young age, a lot of political instability, a lot of violence, a lot of grief, wanting to recognize that, but also being a new person in the space, just trying to orient myself and just feeling utterly exhausted. And I went home to Mexico over the winter break and spent a lot of time outside and just realized that I think one of the things that I would need to be able to maintain that balance and to not just get absolutely burnt out and miserable would be to integrate into my daily, weekly practice time outside. And I had visited the Hilltop Gardens in the fall Mm -hmm. and really enjoyed the space. I think the benefit of it is that it's so big that it has its own kind of ecosystem there that I haven't found. It's like a a community center, but with this like ecosystem around it. And so I proposed starting a little garden there in the spring, and it really drew a lot of people with similar interests in terms of community and care and alternative ways of being in the university system. And so we started with the idea of trying to counter kind of the dominant ways that community gardens exist in in Bloomington in the U.S. and try and challenge that with all the different ways that you can engage with plants. And they don't have to be tidily in rows. They don't have to produce food for us to harvest just for eating. We can enjoy it. It doesn't have to just be for production. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit of a mess at the beginning. We all just kind of came out and spent Saturdays together in the garden planting things and tried to have a plan and it didn't really go super well, but we had some experiments in there. And a lot of the students that were engaged were students who are international students who weren't able to go home because of the pandemic. And so we had a lot of conversations about place and land and Mm. relationships. And yeah, it just became a space for thinking through these ideas of alternative ways of being and also for getting to know Indiana as soil as a place that has its own web of life Mm -hmm. and trying to get to know that as well. So paying attention to things in the seasons of the different animals that came through. And I was able to also integrate it into my classes as kind of uh, embodied place to learn from as well, not just lectures, but like, can we go out and forage and see what kinds of different things are growing in the grass? Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of grown into a a series of little projects that are stemming off of all of the students that are involved as well. So we have some outreach to the Latino community here in Bloomington. We started going door to door with little epasote herb plants and just asking people like, do you like plants? (laughs) Do you want to learn more? Would you like to in the future have some kind of activity in this garden space? And that was a lot inspired by the work I did in Nashville, just knowing that For a lot of parents who have kids growing up in the States, one of the things that is painful is that they don't know how different things grow, Mm -hmm. especially 
ingredients, plants that are part of Latin American cuisine and herbs that in Mexico people grow in pots on their sidewalk, but here there's less access. So mm-hmm. trying to provide that space as well and having a few events of you know, just inviting people to come out and play in the garden, create mm-hmm. art in the garden, have book discussions in the garden. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of just become a community co-op space where we think through these ideas and support each other in experimental ways of being in the university and also trying to connect that to the community that's outside of the university. In one of the descriptions for the garden, I saw this line. We work together with the garden to unlearn practices of white supremacy, and those are urgency, perfectionism, homogeneity, hierarchical decision-making, defensiveness, and create a space for multiple ways of knowing related to land and relating to one another. It is just such an interesting approach and something I have never seen in another community gardening space. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah. On our website, there's a link to the resource that that definition kind of comes from. And it's a really great resource because I think especially in the uprisings in 2020, white supremacy became this this word that we associated with other people. And that was really only the furthest edge of like terrible things and not all of the other ways that this idea of one way of being in the world being the best way. And it's something that we all unintentionally subscribe to just by being a part of a nation that eliminated indigenous ways of being that was all about homogenizing immigrant and enslaved ways of being in the world. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we accidentally internalize a lot of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think I see it especially in academic spaces, the way that the academic world is set up is very much about this sense of like, we need to do this now, you need to publish this now, you need to answer this email now, you Mm -hmm. need to do this really well, there's no space for making mistakes, you need to have known this already and already Mm -hmm. be an expert in it. And that creates this community that's just always tense and always exhausted and always seeking to put blame on people and it's become so normalized that we can't even see it we can't even see how unhappy we are with something that isn't serving us anyway (laughs) and and I think one of the the things that I want to create in the garden is a space for people to make mistakes while they're unlearning that because it's really hard to practice a new way of being in the world if you've spent your whole life being a whole different way. And so it's really aspirational. (laughs) We're trying to be non-hierarchical, and yet I I still (laughs) try and, like, send out the main emails and want to know everything that's going on. And we're trying not to be perfectionist, but sometimes it's really frustrating when things don't go the way we had planned. And Mm -hmm. But really making space for seeing that recognizing why it's happening. I'm used to living in this other way of being. I'm trying not to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. How can we practice that by taking a breath, (laughs) just letting this be a different rhythm and and moving on? Yeah, and seeing seeing lists like that, I I have encountered that before. And it is just so 
um, when you recognize yourself in it and you realize like, well, this is just the way I've always been. And I thought that's the way I was supposed to be. And just realizing like, there's another way this is learned. This is, these are, especially something like, you know, perfectionism is something I can totally identify with. And when we bring it into our spaces of pleasure, not just our work. Mm -hmm. We bring it into the garden. We bring it into cooking. We bring it into these spaces where it just doesn't belong and isn't helping with what we're trying to do, which is connect with each other or connect mm -hmm. with ourselves or the earth. And, and things like perfectionism and urgency, they get in the way. I just think it's really interesting to see that named in a space that we're actually going to intentionally think about these things yeah. and try not to, to go there. Yeah, and I absolutely have to shout out the Plant Truck Project as Lauren McAllister, who's the one that leads that project, we had great conversations about this that helped me think through this a lot. So like I said, I'm learning this right now. <laughs> I'm not an expert in it, right. but I'm here learning and kind of making it public that I'm, I'm trying to unlearn. This is the goal. But I think that their work is also like steps ahead of that. When we spoke, Caitlin was scheduled to give a talk on food as storytelling. I asked her to explain. So I think that food has memories inherent to it that we might not realize we have in our own minds. <laughs> so the way that a smell can make you think of a particular moment in time it not only taps into that memory, it taps into all of the things that you know to be true about that world. So a smell can make you think of your grandmother's kitchen, but within that memory you might know what kind of tiles she had, what kinds of cups she had, and all of this is knowledge about the way the world worked that particular moment. And a lot of times the foods that have been passed down, particularly during moments of strife and chaos and violence, our messages about how to be in a world that is counter to these particular moments of trauma and violence. So comfort foods are stories about the ways that you can imagine something better or the ways that you can embody something better in a particular moment just by eating a food that reminds you of care, that reminds you of a way of engaging with one another. And so the talk is... is going to be talking about my work in Mexico, but also thinking about our relationship to land and the, the climate crisis that we're, that we're experiencing right now and how the ways that what we choose to eat really shape our relationships to the world we're living in and shape the realities that we are creating for the future. And there's all kinds of complex issues here, but just thinking about the way that eating a frozen pizza tells a different story about what's important, about what's possible, about all the ingredients that have been super processed in ways that you can't even imagine. You don't have that same relationship to food as if you were able to grow salad greens and throw a salad together, or you were able to harvest that wheat and make your own pizza. Those are different ways of being in the world. One is highly industrialized. One is a story where you're very disconnected from your body, where you're very disconnected from the places, the people who made your food. And so thinking about how we can we can rethink about our food systems as ways that we're projecting into the future about how the world will work as well and how we can use 
things like community gardens or spaces where people have more control over their food as a way to give them agency to shape a world that's different from the one that they're kind of pushed in through um, through these these food systems and work systems and things that strip possibility. In the example you gave of the frozen pizza, though, I I can imagine someone having a food memory of their dad heating up a yeah. <laughs> a frozen pizza on a Friday night as a treat and the comfort or the nurturing that that could could embody for them regardless of maybe the story of that particular food's production. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually in the prehistoric diet and nutrition class, one of our final projects was to pick a comfort food and trace its origins. And mm-hmm. I had a student whose comfort food was Totino's pizza rolls. Mm-hmm. And I think that the comfort and like the social relationship is absolutely there. But then unpacking like why is that food the one that becomes the comfort food? Mm -hmm. And it has a lot to do with labor and economy. And if given all of the options in the world, would that still be the comfort food that would make you feel the best on all of the different layers right you know so does it make your body function to your optimal energy and gut processing capacity does it help sustain you for more years or is it something that is comfort in a short term because that's what you have access to Mm -hmm. but how do we because it's connected to a relationship that's meaningful to you yeah exactly but yeah i think untangling all of those stories is really important to understand all of the different ways that people create networks of care through food that are valid and necessary, but also at the same time challenging why some people only have those options of networks of care and ways of engaging in the food system and what you're putting in your body and what is actually making you who you are. And then other people have more options and more ways to create and cultivate that care. Yeah. Looks like it's about time to wrap up. Thank you. I really, this has been a great conversation for me. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Caitlin Alcantara. She's an anthropological bioarchaeologist in the anthropology department at Indiana University Bloomington. That's all we have time for today. But you can hear the rest of our conversation, there's a bit more, on our website, eartheats.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to learn more about Dr. Alcantara's work and some of what we talked about. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aavon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Caitlin Alcantara and to Mike Pascash for recording assistance. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. 
Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.